Good morning, everyone, once again. Has God ever done something in your life that you didn't expect? Everyone should be chuckling at this point, like mightily chuckling, and every hand should just shoot up. You should pull an Arnold Horshack for those of you that remember this show. Maybe God uh, met your expectations. Maybe he exceeded them. Maybe he defied your expectations altogether. My life tends to fall into that uh, latter category, the defying my expectations. So you guys know what I mean, yes? Give me a head nod if you know what I'm talking about. Yep, okay, good, you're tracking. Uh, Last week, Fred talked a lot about expectations. What do we expect of God? That is a relevant, a particularly relevant question for Advent in this season of waiting and great preparation and great expectation. What do we expect of this Savior King whose arrival we anticipate? Who will will Jesus be who I expected him to be? And that's a relevant question now as it was 2,000 years ago. That's a timeless question. And how do we prepare to meet him? So these are some of my own Advent musings. I suspect some of yours too. Is Jesus who we expect him to be? Now, we talk a lot about John the Baptist during the Advent season, which makes sense, especially given that Advent theme of preparation that fits with John. He was the one who announced Jesus as Messiah. He prepared Israel to meet her king, to be ready, to be alert, to receive him. John the Baptist certainly played a role in setting people's expectations about Jesus, I would say, part of the preparation. So it makes sense why we encounter so much of him during our Advent readings. And just maybe this morning, he can help prepare us to receive Jesus as well. So we're going to be in Matthew 11, 2 through 19, which you just heard from the Reader's Theater. So our gospel passage today contains several resonant questions. Many of them are tied to expectations, I think. And the open question in this passage, I think, cuts to the Advent heart of the matter. Jesus, are you the one? Are you the one we've been waiting for? This comes from an unexpected source. It comes from John the Baptist himself. Now, we haven't heard much from John since back in Matthew 3. What we do know is he is in prison. So what he does is he sends some disciples uh, to seek out Jesus to sort of ascertain and discern what is the messianic situation. They're kind of on a recon mission. Okay, to gather intelligence. And John's question for Jesus is simple. Are you the one that we have been waiting for? Now, John seems to be working out his estimation of Jesus in some sense. And this is sort of the first part of the passage, probably verses 2 to 6 we're going to work with first. Now, recall, John is Jesus' cousin. He's the man who baptized Jesus. He saw the dove come down, the heavens open, the voice of God the Father speaking his delight and pleasure over Jesus. Okay, John was around for that. And even though he heralded Jesus as the Messiah, John still has some doubts. Can't you hear John's tentative, fragile hope in this question? Jesus, are, are you the one or should we wait for someone else to come? There might even be some ambivalence here. John had his doubts, and I appreciate his naked honesty. I love this. He's honest. Now, John is writing, or not writing, uh, sending his disciples. He's in Herod's prison. He's soon to be executed. He's likely discouraged, struggling, uh, given his imprisonment. I think this makes sense. Discouragement and doubt, they often go uh, hand in hand. Even the mighty and the fiery and the uncompromising prophet, John the Baptist, is unsure. (laughs) He doubts. 
Now, I have to wonder, speaking of expectations, did Jesus defy even his expectations as to what the Messiah would be like? Is Jesus different than he expected? John the Baptist, I think, is a mirror here for us of this sort of tentative hope, honest doubt, altered expectations. Will we believe and will we allow God himself to inform and shape our expectations? Hold that question as I preach today. Will we allow God to inform and shape our expectations? Now, John has certainly heard and seen some things in Jesus' ministry already. He's, this isn't the first exposure to it. But apparently, he wanted more positive data, wanted more evidence. Thus, his question, Jesus, are, are you the one? Are you the much-waited-for one? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Now, some of John's expectations about the Messiah's future role were correct. Jesus would baptize with fire. Jesus would judge the world. Jesus would free the captives. But how and when Jesus would go about his mission seemed to sort of stymie and beguile John. And better said, maybe the sequence is what tripped John up there. The judgment John preached about and spoke of seemed to be reserved for Jesus' second coming. So John wasn't wrong about Jesus' mission. He wasn't wrong about that. Perhaps he was just wrong about the order and the sequence. Again, we're back to expectations. So the disciples of John, they are his mouthpiece here, and they speak that question. Jesus, are, are you the one? Who better to tell us than the Lord himself? And Jesus goes on to speak of the fruit of his messianic mission. This is verses 4 to 6. Uh, disciples, tell John what you see and what you hear. And Jesus re refers directly to our Old Testament passage we heard uh, earlier, Isaiah 35. He also pulls a little bit from Isaiah 61. He's fulfilling those prophecies as God's anointed servant king. And what are the fruits of this kingdom? John, look at this. Signs, miracles, healing. Okay, the blind receive sight, tell John the lame walk, tell him lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. John, it's happening. Disciples, go and tell John. All this is fulfilled. Isaiah 35 is coming to pass. Isaiah 61 is coming to pass. And John would have absolutely gotten the illusion here. He wouldn't have gone, that sounds vaguely familiar. He would have known, that's, that's the prophet Isaiah. He would have known this. Expectations. Thus far, Jesus' ministry looked different than what John had expected. John had preached that the Messiah would baptize in the Spirit and with fire, casting the wicked into the fires of purgation. This is Matthew 3, going back there. John's main theme, his message was what? Was repentance and judgment. Whereas Jesus' first moves in ministry, interestingly, revolved more around restoration and healing and fulfillment. Jesus focuses on the future blessings spoken of in Isaiah more than he does these eschatological judgments spoken of there as well. Let's see more John's focus. So this isn't to say John's approach was wrong and Jesus's was right or vice versa. No, no. These are two servants, same mission, different roles, different expressions. I mean, Jesus obviously speaks of judgments and repentance at times as well. So the point here I want to make Jesus' ministry is simply different than what John anticipated. And I suspect that's where some of John's confusion lay, his expectations, <laughs> compounded by doubt and discouragement, I believe. What Jesus shares here with John's disciples, the miraculous, hopeful fruits of his ministry, 
I believe this is ultimately meant to encourage his disciples and John as well, even though there's a little hint of a mild rebuke in verse 6. But uh, Jesus' encouragement to John and company preaches to us too. I think Jesus desires to encourage us when we're wrestling with doubt about his identity, when we're discouraged, confused as to what he is up to in our life or in the world around us. Like John's disciples, I think we can take heart. So John's disciples depart. They carry this message of encouragement, presumably to John. And Jesus turns his attention to the crowd. And we move into verses 7 to 15 here. So addressing the crowd, Jesus speaks of the identity of this forerunner. Who is John the Baptist? Who is he? Jesus talks about this at length. And he asks this question, which I love. He does it three times. What did you go in the wilderness to see? Why did you go seek John out? What did you go in the wilderness to see? Again, great question. You, did not, you didn't choose to, like, say, take a vacation in the wilderness, okay? You don't do that. This is an inhospitable, dangerous, untamed, rough place. You wouldn't choose to go there. So what are people seeking? What are they hungry for? They're hungry for something, okay? What is this all about? What did you go into the wilderness to see? Three times. First time, did you go to see a reed swayed by the wind, okay? Reeds being sort of a mainstay in this region by the Jordan River, okay, pulling from an analogy that we understand. In other words, uh, did you go to hear like a weak or flaky preacher bending every time the winds of culture shift or swaying in the breeze of public opinion rather than being steady and sturdy, steadfast, I should say? No, John was made of sterner stuff than this. So no, there's kind of an implied no in that. What'd you go in the wilderness to see second time around? A finely dressed man of influence and power. Did you go out to see that? In other words, someone who's sort of part of the establishment. John, uh, obviously the little bit we know of his life, he did not exactly lead a cushy life, certainly not a refined life, uh, not a very sophisticated one. It's like a palace courtesan, which he's being compared to. He was an ascetic, right? John was not a court prophet, paid to serve a royal ruler. He was not there to just deliver only the good news. In other words, he wasn't a false prophet. In times when true prophets were persecuted, some of them lived out in the wilderness, as in the days of Elijah. John was obviously of that ilk. John was, by court standards, sophisticated standards, he was tactless. He was uncompromising. He was gruff by comparison. So what you go out into the wilderness to see? A finely dressed man of influence and power of the court? No. Third time, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? You went to see a prophet. <laughs> you went to see the not listened to ones. And by the way, John is more than a prophet. He's the forerunner. He's the messenger. Verse 10 alludes directly to Malachi 3.1, the one who prepares the way for the Messiah, the herald. This is John. John, I find a fascinating character. Uh, I kind of look at him like I do Simeon and Anna earlier in uh, Luke's account. He has a totally unique place in salvation history. He is the end of the era, end of an era. Uh, he's the last in a great line of these Old Testament prophets. Jews thought the age of the prophets ended with Malachi. Uh, Jesus says it's John, okay? John stands between the Old Covenant and the New, the Old Testament and the New. He's this incredible hinge figure who stands between promise and consummation. The greatest prophet of them all, though he was only able to welcome the New Covenant from afar. He was to be executed before the full consummation of Jesus' ministry on the cross. 
So for all of John's greatness, why would Jesus then say, whoever is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist? I'm so glad you asked that question. I'll answer it for you. John the Baptist heralded and announced the coming kingdom, but to an extent he remained outside of it. As close as you can come to entering into the new covenant without actually doing so, it's kind of like Moses looking over the promised land from afar before his death. We are greater than John the Baptist. Uh, It's not because we're more devout. It's not because we're more holy than he was, but because we've heard and been saved by the fuller message of God's mission. We have the big reveal of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we can look back and understand some things that John didn't or he only glimpsed or knew in theory. So we're children of the new covenant, John of the old. So John stands outside, in a sense, the kingdom of heaven. He's the very last of a very old order. And thus, Jesus says, John is Elijah. This is verses 14, 15. Um, The significance there, if you're wondering, Elijah was to be the one who preceded the Messiah. When Elijah came, that was the sign. The Messiah was on the way. This is per Malachi 4, Verses 5 and 6. It's a widely held belief in first century century Judaism. Elijah came first, then came the Messiah. He was to be the forerunner, and John the Baptist is he, Jesus is saying. So Jesus is testifying not only to John's identity, but his own, his own. Whoever has ears, let them hear. In other words, whatever I said, what I just said is really important. Boy, I hope you guys caught it. So... Jesus has established his own identity. This was kind of verses 2 through 6. He's spoken definitively of John's identity, 7 to 15. In these last few verses, 16 to 19, he's going to focus on um, how are we received by the surrounding culture? This present generation, he calls them. How does that look? And speaking of expectations, you know, we're in the thick of it here too. He describes this generation with a parable, okay? It's not a particularly flattering picture. It's a scandalous. It's critical. It's these children playing in the marketplace. You might go, oh, that's adorable. Children, you know? Uh, It's wonderful. Usually when Jesus speaks of children, they are a positive example. Well, guess what? You think they are here? Nope. (laughs) No, not a positive example in this case. They're playing in the market, complaining that others won't, 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 bleh. They're playing in the market. We're going to start over, complaining that others wouldn't join in on their games. There we go. Um, and here's, here's sort of the idea. Children are piping or playing the flute. Image here is probably a wedding celebration. Uh, they're also singing a dirge. This is an image of mourning, probably a funeral. And guess what? They piped, but John and Jesus don't dance to the music. They play the dirge. John and Jesus refuse to mourn. In other words, they don't play ball. (laughs) They don't play along. Prophets and messiahs rarely do. They defied the culture's expectations, which puts Jesus and John in a bind, as we shall see. Last couple of verses. There's sort of a cultural bind that Jesus highlights. Now, certainly, if you read the Bible on any surface level, it's not hard to see John and Jesus are Fairly unorthodox, right? Fairly unconventional. They both upset the order of things. They do. They both scandalize people. They're not afraid to do that. Here's John, right? The extreme ascetic, right? With food and drink. 
fiery preacher of judgment. He's got the camel hair. He's got the locust eating, the living in the wilderness, all that, calling people to repent and fast over Israel's sins. We've got all that. He's a teetotaler as well, which obviously fits with the ascetic piece. And he's the last one prone to gluttony. But his generation, this passage says, he is a demon. That's the criticism. Then there's Jesus. Jesus, who makes a habit of mingling with and healing the scum of the earth, those that were considered that. He hangs out with the unclean. He hangs out with the outcast, the outliers, and the sinner. And he celebrates the kingdom like a wedding feast. His first miracle in Cana, water to wine. And it's a lot of wine, folks. Go calculate it sometime. Uh, he drinks and eats with sinners. So his current generation in this passage says, well, he's a glutton and he's a drunkard. What Jesus is saying here towards the very end of this passage, we just can't win. <laughs> We just can't win. Both John and Jesus violate the current generation's expectations and cultural conventions. And so what does the, this generation do? Well, Jesus says, well, they, they refuse to listen to either Jesus. They, Jesus says, they refuse to listen to me. They refuse to listen to John. Jesus, we play childish games, and you didn't play along. This is sort of the spiritual equivalent of God. I don't like what you're doing, so I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. Right? It's a little bit of that. At the very least, it is a picture, this parable towards the end, of a culture that has a growing hostility towards Jesus and his gospel. It is certainly foreshadowing. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. This is that strong ending in our passage, final words. I think this is a similar answer that Jesus gave to John the Baptist's disciples. Look at the fruit. <laughs> wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Look at the fruit. The fulfillment of Isaiah 35, healing, restoration, wholeness. Uh, look at what you see and what you hear. Wisdom is proved right by her manifest deeds. Okay, wrapping things up. Back to John's original question that launched us off in verse 2. Jesus, are you the one? Let me frame that in some Advent language for you. Would we recognize Jesus if he returned? Would we recognize Jesus if he returned? And that presses into a deeper question, I think. Is Jesus made in our image? Because we can do that with God, can we not? We can make him into whatever we or our current ambient culture values the most. We can kind of make him into that form. Or we allow God, Jesus to be God incarnate. Would we recognize Jesus if he showed up? Were Jesus, I think, to come in our day and age... I have no doubt that he would radically upset all our lives, <laughs> challenge our notions of faith and obedience and justice and freedom. I think he would challenge every Christian in our day and age. And he would most certainly violate and defy some of our own expectations. I mean, if Jesus came back for me to go, yeah, I'd be in line with that. He wouldn't surprise me. That is hogwash. <laughs> Jesus would upset the apple cart that is my life, guaranteed, because of expectations. It's all about that. What if Jesus isn't who you thought he was? What if Jesus isn't who you want him to be? What if Jesus isn't who you need him to be? What if Jesus isn't who you expect him to be? What if Jesus decides to start messing around with your finances? Oh, mercy, right? What if Jesus starts messing around with your marriage? What if Jesus starts messing around with your politics? What if Jesus starts messing around with your vocation? I mean, just insert your favorite sacred cow there. What if Jesus comes and starts messing around in that? 
Will you still follow him? That's always a question with the gospel, is it not? Will you let him upset the apple cart that is your life? I want you to think of your life as a manger. And yes, I think of manger in terms of Advent, Christmas. Yep, you're on the right track. Think of your life as a manger, okay? Where Jesus is to be laid. Is it ready to receive him? If that is your life, if your life is a manger, is it ready to receive Jesus? Maybe Advent is a time uh, simply to let God be God, to let him inform uh, and shape and redeem our expectations, right? To let Jesus tell us exactly, exactly who he is. And our job, perhaps, is to be willing to be surprised and to receive Jesus Christ, as did a young mother to be named Mary. In humility, in faith, with courage, great courage, and with great expectation.